Friends, welcome to year four of Camp Kaiju. Now, the next number of episodes may sound a little different because they were recorded in previous seasons as exclusive Patreon content. So why release them now to the masses instead of recording just new episodes? Well, if you didn't know already, my wife and I welcomed a baby girl into our lives, and as such, Camp Kaiju must go into hibernation while I focus my efforts on bringing up that fearsome little monster kid. And until the podcast returns with new episodes, you can still get caught up on all the great monster movie talk at our website, campkaijumoviereviews.com, Letterboxd, Instagram, and Facebook. Matt and I are still going to engage with you all there. You can find links in the bio. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for your ratings and reviews. Thank you, patrons, for your above and beyond support for this show. Talking monster movies with you all has been an absolute joy. Producing this podcast has been an absolute thrill, and I hope to get back to it soon. Until then, be well, stay in touch, and stay campy. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Camp Kaiju Monster Movie Reviews. We're so happy to have you for a special episode. We are your hosts, Vincent Hannum and Matt Levine. And we're talking about all our favorite monster movies, the good, the bad and the downright campy and asking if they stand the test of time. Traditional kaiju creature feature space invaders, the supernatural and everything in between. All strange beasts, welcome here. We are going to have a, a fun little chat here talking about short features. Well, that's an oxymoron. Short <laughs> movies uh, featuring some monsters. Indeed, yeah, yeah. So for these three movies, A Trip to the Moon, Papillon d'Amour, and Bambi Meets Godzilla, we'll spend probably around 10 minutes on each film. We'll give you a little background on the history, on the legacy, and we'll do our normal breakdown and give it a rating like any other episode. Cool. Sounds Sounds great. All right. So should we start with A Trip to the Moon? Yeah, that sounds good to me. All right. Seems like you did a lot of this research and you have the master's degree in film. (laughs) So... (laughs) <laughs> and I'm very, I'm really fascinated by this time period as well. It's kind of like the foundations of the art form. You know, it's a very exciting time uh, in cinema history. So, all right. Yeah. So A Trip to the Moon from 1902, uh, a hugely influential movie in the history of science fiction, fantasy, um, you know, um, yeah, kind of laying the groundwork a little bit for many of the sort of fantastic special effects, which look very different later on in cinema history, but do kind of go back not only to a trip to the moon, but to the filmmaker Georges Méliès in general. Georges Méliès was the son of a shoemaker. Uh, He came from a pretty wealthy family, but he left the family business, I think in the 1880s, because he was always fascinated by magic and theater and kind of all all these spectacular effects that he wanted to achieve. And uh, he always had kind of like a childlike fascination with the sense of wonder that like this kind of, you know, 
fantastic genre could give to audiences. So he owned uh, a theater, uh, I think as far back as the 1880s. And in his in the theater that he owned in 1895, the Lumiere brothers uh, demonstrated this fantastic new invention that they had where they projected a film. It was one of the first public uh, projections of, of cinema in, in history, basically, in 1895. So Melies, like many other people, were fascinated by this new invention, like, you know, still photographs coming to life, this illusion of reality happening right in front of your very eyes. Um, so um, on that night, December 28th, 1895, which, you know, it, it's very hard to have sort of like a start date for cinema, because like before that, there were like all these different visual toys, different kind of like, in, like, like, you know, where you would... Um, uh like look through a viewfinder and like spin the carousel around that might have been like sort of a uh precursor to the kind of films that the lumiere brothers showed in 1895 but for all intents and purposes that kind of was the birth of cinema in the sense of a film projected before a live audience hmm. so millie has asked the lumiere brothers you know how do i get my hands on this invention it's amazing i want to see what i can do with it and the lumiere brothers being sort of clever you know, business people, in addition to artists, were like, no, we're not going to let you, we're not going to give this to you. We're not going to let you know how we did it. Uh, Meliez eventually figured out uh, how to get a projector. I think he got one from London because a lot of other people in Europe were trying to figure out how to do this at the same time. So he got a projector from, from London or somewhere in England, and he figured out how to make a camera out of it, like just out of his own sort of like technical mastery, basically. He started making films in the late 1890s, um, but when he first started, they weren't really all that different from the Lumiere brothers, where it was kind of just like setting up a camera and having like a scene play out. It might have been like, you know, with the Lumiere brothers, famous examples are just like a train arriving at a station or like employees leaving a factory, like slices of life like that. It wasn't until Melies, I believe in 1902. No, it must have been earlier than that. It might have been like right around 1900. He was filming a street scene. A bus was passing in front of the camera. The camera jammed and he had to kind of like, um, you know, get it back on track. And then when he started filming again and then projected the film back later, it looked like the bus that he was filming turned into a hearse before his very eyes. But like the movement was seamless. So he was like, this is a magic trick. Like, look at these amazing things that you can do with this new invention. Uh, this is kind of a long lead up to say that Melias is seen as like the um creator of narrative fantasy films and i think again like we could complicate that a little bit i think the lumiere brothers did tell stories in their early movies as well so it's not entirely melies's creation but yeah certainly for sure he came up with these fantastic stories of you know witches and magicians and like fantastic creatures that would appear before your very eyes through you know in-camera tricks where he would stop filming and then replace whatever was in front of the camera and do like through clever editing and like, you know, um, very careful choreography. It seemed like these impossible effects were happening. So a trip to the moon, 1902. Uh, that was maybe like five years into him making these movies. And Matt, and it was, is it fair to say um, he, if not created, maybe he did invent a lot of the editing that we take for granted or did he perfect it like dissolves and fades was that him messing around the camera and coming up with these effects yeah i i think it is fair to say that especially in terms of like visual effects that nobody had ever attempted before 
I think in terms of editing, you also have Edwin S. Porter around the same time. He had the movie The Great Train Robbery from 1903. So just a year after A Trip to the Moon, Mm. where, you know, there is some fairly complicated cross cutting where there's like a pretty involved story that's being told in that movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, Edwin S. Porter also has a movie called Life of an American Fireman. That is from, I think, the same year as A Trip to the Moon, where this is kind of an involved story. Sorry, but like uh, Edwin S. Porter shot various angles and various versions of different scenes and the projectionists themselves could kind of like cut the film together and show whatever version they thought was best for their audience. Hmm. So there was a lot of experimentation going on. There was a lot of innovation in terms of like how to tell a story, how to convey a sense of space and time on film. Uh, But I do think it's fair to say that Melies, you know, made the art form leap forward quite a bit with like these magic visions that you could achieve. And I and and we'll get to the film itself, but I think it's so fortuitous, like what like the man who created or perfected um, the, the illusion of film that we that we know and love himself was a magician. I think it it almost like had to have been a magician to do this kind of work. And if it weren't for him and his unique background, who knows how long it would have taken for people to just figure it out because they right. they weren't thinking the same way Melies was. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I do think part of the appeal for early cinema was that it was kind of like a magic act. Like I think, you know, audience like there's the legendary story that when the Lumiere brothers first showed Arrival of a Train at La Ciotat from 1896, it was like the illusion of depth because we see this tiny speck of a train just like racing towards the audience and the the legend goes that like the audience members like ran out of the theater because they thought they were going to be ran over by this train (laughs) so i think like this sense that it was a magic trick that it was like an optical illusion where like they didn't know what was happening and how it was achieved i i think that story is somewhat apocryphal i think there had been enough like inventions before then that audiences probably kind of knew what was going on but still, there was a sense of magic and a sense of wonder that was like pervasive in cinema at that time. Yeah. So then Melies makes A Trip to the Moon, which is like just insane. It's just nobody ever seen anything like this before. Right. It was mind boggling. Yeah. I mean, like it was his biggest production to date. Uh, it took, I think, three months to make, which at that time was a very long time. Uh, because Melly has made more than 500 movies throughout his career. Like he was just peddling them out all the time, basically. And they didn't really take all that long to make for the most part. Right. But A Trip to the Moon did. I mean, three months was a long time. It cost 10,000 francs, I think, which again was a huge amount at that time. Yeah. And yeah, it was a pretty involved story and production. Like a lot of different sets were created in his soundstage. Um, lots of different costumes, lots of actors, relatively speaking for the time. Uh, so a huge undertaking for sure. And it's only 15 minutes long. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And even then, like, you know, projectionists could kind of like crank the projectors at different speeds and like could even like cut scenes out if they wanted to. Like projectionists had a weird amount of control over like what they presented to their audience at the time. It was sort of just like a Wild West at that time. Um, So, yeah, like technically it is like about uh, like 13 minutes, right? Well, 15 maybe with extra credit. Like the the, yeah. the version on HBO Max is 15 minutes. 
Gotcha. Yeah. But there's, you know, some title cards in the beginning and end. Yeah, gotcha. So, yeah, and there was like a little bit of variation on that, even when it was initially screened like that could kind of vary a little bit. But mm -hmm. but yeah, it was hugely popular. And I they there were remakes or sort of like rip offs is probably a better word for it. Like all wow. over, you know, yeah. like in the United States, all through Edison, Europe, like Edison yeah, exactly. and his his uh, his wily ways was bootlegging this thing and selling it as his own. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so it was it was a. Uh, you know, there probably weren't really blockbusters at this time, but if there were, this was maybe the first one, you know? Yeah, and I think it's important to talk about the restoration history, which isn't very old. Like, that's not yeah. ancient. Within our own lifetime, the... In Melies time, color film was not uncommon. It wasn't filmed on color film stock, like what, what would become. No, this would be hand-painted... People would go in and, and hand paint the the frame itself. Yeah. Huge time suck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And in doing some research about this, I read about this factory uh, owned by Elizabeth and Berta Tuier. Tuier. My French pronunciation is horrible. I apologize. But these two women had like a factory with more than 200 technicians who would be like hand painting each frame and each of the technicians would be responsible for a specific color. And it was very much an assembly line where like one person would like paint one color on the frame and then they would it would go down the line. So, yeah, this was a huge kind of industry at the time. Yeah. And so all that to say the well, the 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 film itself, correct me if I'm wrong um was more or less forgotten right because it was one of thousands of short movies that were being made at the time but it was rediscovered in 1930 when there was a general reappraisal of Melies' influence on film history but there were no surviving color prints of the film until one was discovered by a film collector donated his collection in Barcelona in 1993 and suddenly a lost color print of a trip to the moon was found, but it was in complete shambles. Um, is there a more technical way to put that? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, like I, I heard it compared to a hockey puck, like the, the um, celluloid had like shrunk and it had decayed to an extent that it was like wow. stuck together and they didn't think that they would be able to salvage it. Right. They didn't even think they could get it together. And I can't even fathom the painstaking labor to to slowly pull that apart and then digitize it and what i love in this in this story so it was this was discovered in 1993 it took uh how many years to digitize it so it I, together? I, I think their efforts really started in 1999 like it kind of sat around for a couple of years and then there were a few french um i think movie producers uh I can find out their names, but they they learned that this Barcelona film museum basically had this old print. So like in 1999, they started working on it. And then I think it took until like 2011 was like when they premiered their new restored version of it. So basically 12 years at the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah, indeed. Did I say that right? Uh, Yeah. Cannes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> French. <laughs> Uh, no, but the the one little tidbit about that is um, they they were able to digitize the film. 
but then it sat on a computer for eight years because they didn't have the technology yet to then do what they needed to do. And that just blows my mind where it's like, you know, as a, as an artist, you're like, you know, eventually we'll have the technology. So let's just hold it on ice till then. It's like, whoa, you don't know how long it's going to take. And it took eight years. Mind boggling the commitment to this thing. Yeah, absolutely. It gives you such great respect for people that are restoring film, you know, like, yeah, it's a huge undertaking. And, you know, digitizing film is it like kind of a controversial thing. Like is celluloid preferred or is digitizing it better? But like, it's complicated, of course. And like sometimes with a film print like this, you have to digitize it in order to show it at all. So, you know, that's an amazing thing to rescue something like this. And um, now we have this experience where we can watch this glorious hand painted color print of this movie that's 121 years old, you know? Right. And that's the print that's available. That's streaming at least on Max right now. Um, that's what I watched for this. The there is a they did restore properly restore the black and white version as well, which is available online. Um, I think I think, you know, I think there are pros and cons, right? I mean, this is all our entire conversation is going to be with a tremendous love for the project. Um, but Matt, if you're okay, just going into our breakdowns. Yeah, for sure. I am. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, um, I took some notes. It's such, it's so great too, that it's 15 minutes. Cause you can just rewatch it over and yeah. over again. Um, I really liked the there, you know, if you talk about themes, there are two themes maybe that come to mind. Uh, the theme of colonization, which uh, certainly a product of its time. 1902, uh, which is also a fascinating time capsule that the film presents. But I love in the beginning that the this kind of can't be too that there's like a team of scientists and they're all dressed like wizards. And, you know, can you read into that as a sort of a, a mockery of the scientific elite? <laughs> and then uh, can't be. I'll get to it later. But um, um, I like and and this is specific to this rest uh, this restored version i like the music and it's by a french band called air um but i think it adds a sort of a kookiness but also a mystery to the adventure that i found um worth it yeah that was good yeah i agree i like that soundtrack a lot yeah mm -hmm. um and yeah i mean not to go too much into the history of film projection at the time but like it again it was kind of like there were a lot of so not only did you have like different music that could be played, Melies did have like scores that he sent out with the film, but oh. the projectionists could just not play that. They could play something else. And also in a lot of movie theaters, you had like a live narrator who would be like talking to the audience while the film was being screened. Hmm. So there are just like countless ways that this movie might have been experienced by audiences at the time in 1902. Hmm. Um, but yeah, seeing it in this way with like the new air score and the newly, you know, colorized print or newly restored color print um it looks gorgeous and it sounds great it's um yeah. you know i feel like we're lucky to have something like this yeah and the set design i just love like the sets it's clear melies is has a has a background in theater um with the moving sets and you can picture this on a vaudeville stage let alone being filmed so it's yeah. really cool absolutely yeah it's um uh 
So yeah, when I was in in school, when I was studying film in school, you know, I I read a little bit about the cinema of attractions, which is how kind of like early cinema was referred to, where like a cohesive narrative and like in-depth characters were kind of irrelevant. Like that was not why people went to see movies. It was more like presenting these fantastic visions. Melies was like the most extreme example of that, but like most movies at the time did a similar thing where it was like showing amazing things to the audience. Um and yeah, like watching them nowadays, it's kind of jarring because we kind of do, for the most part, expect story and character and like a cohesive theme or whatever from movies. And that's not at all what these early films were trying to do, which I think is fascinating, although it can be like it you like you kind of watch it from a distance. You're not really like fully absorbed in the film, you know, it's just such a unique time period where you know, like the rules or whatever of narrative filmmaking probably wouldn't really be like firmly entrenched for another like 10 or 15 years, maybe 10 years. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, like it, it's not like I think the movie is really imaginative. It's very playful. It's very funny at times, um, but it's not like an exciting story that we get wrapped up in. I think like the first the pacing is kind of weird because the first five minutes or so, it's kind of a long time. <laughs> then we're just watching like maybe two or three static shots of this, all of these wizard slash scientists just sort of like hamming it up and making these broad gestures. And it's like, we don't know who any of these people are. We don't know exactly <laughs> what's going on, although they're kind of planning out their trajectory to the moon or whatever. So yeah, like it's hard to really experience it as like an engaging story. But if you're looking at it as like a sign of the creativity that was so rampant in in cinema at the time it's so fascinating and i like yeah so then i i think at like the six or seven minute mark when we have these like lunar creatures popping up and these strange mushrooms and like these um people that are like supposed to be like the stars and the moon and stuff like that oh, yeah. um like the most one of the most famous images in film history like the man in the moon the face that gets hit in the eye with the rocket all that stuff is just exhilarating you know yeah and I love that the 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 moon, you know, is coming closer and closer to the camera. And I realized we're watching it from the point of view of the rocket. It's not it's not actually the moon coming closer and closer. It's us. It's the rocket getting closer and closer. But I think the way the effects plays out, it looks like the opposite. But um, yeah, yeah. I, that's an exciting moment. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Especially like I can't even imagine how exciting it was for audiences at the time who probably had never really seen anything like that, you know? Yeah. And I love I do love the aliens and this is a monster movie podcast. So we got to talk about those guys. But yeah, um, I think the costume design is wicked. And I mean that like in a cool way, but also a devilish way. <laughs> uh, they've got like these lobster claws and they have spears and they don't seem to be wanting to play nice with the the European uh, would be conquerors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, indeed. And like the actors playing those creatures like seem to be like acrobats or gymnasts or something because they have these very strange movements like they're they're flipping, they're somersaulting, they're doing all these strange. Yeah. Athletic things. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Good point about the physicality. It's a it's a it's a strong it's a highlight of the film. Those yeah. creatures. Definitely. Yeah. And yeah, like there's this cool effect where like the the colonizers, you know, the European scientists or whatever, when they attack the the creatures, they like hit them with an umbrella and they just like vanish into a puff of smoke. Yeah. 
and it's pretty well done. Like it, it was just a simple effect where like they would stop, you know, cranking the camera. All the actors would like stay as still as possible. And then like the actor playing the creature would leave and then like they would have like a smoke effect and they would start filming again. But it, it looks great. And like, you know, it's uh, that's the kind of in-camera practical effects that we've talked about a lot on the podcast that I really love. Right. And it's that kind of like imagination to even think about that because film was so new and a science fiction fantasy epic had never been done before. Like where, what possessed Melies to get that image in his mind? He's like, you know what? I've never seen this done, but I have this image of an alien blowing up in the smoke. (laughs) Let's do it. And all the actors are like, really? We've been here for all day. You want you put like 20 of these smoke effects into the movie. We have to stop every time. But Melies, the perfectionist illusionist, was like, we got to do it. Yeah. And it, it's that level of dedication that that makes this film so memorable. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, I think Melies is often referred to as like film's first auteur because he wrote designed edited shot starred in like did every every step of the process you know mm. and I, I think again you could complicate that a little bit and say the lumiere brothers or edward porter or, or whoever but like yeah the level that he like had a vision and would not stop until he achieved that vision like that's a sign of the greatest cinema artists of all time you know yeah oh man this is so great good for him I like I think the yeah, those scientist wizards or whatever they are, like they really ham it up as much as possible. And that is like the acting style that was prevalent in movies at the time where they, you know, were like the broadest possible gestures to the audience. But like looking at it nowadays, it's it, you know, it does not seem at all like real human behavior. And uh, it's it's one of the most fascinating things about the movie, but also like, um. Yeah, can't be to the extreme in the sense that like they those cannot be like real characters in like any <laughs> sense that we know humans to behave, you know? Yeah. Uh, a couple of things that just made me laugh in the movie. And this is like me watching this as a as a time capsule. And I'm like, oh, even in 1902, if you have a scientist in a movie, they're going to have an attractive female assistant. <laughs> so... <laughs> And here they have like a whole army of attractive female assistants. Yeah. <laughs> Long legged. They're in like bathing suits. <laughs> and they're rolling out the cannon and the, <laughs> the rocket ship. <laughs> yeah, of course, it's totally ridiculous that all these scientists would just like walk into a rocket and like those female assistants just like push it into like the launch pad or whatever. Like, of course, it's ridiculous, but it's so fun. It's great. <laughs> These tropes have been around forever. (laughs) Also, one of the like the first thing the scientists do when they get to the moon is just go to sleep. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Let's roll out the sleeping bags and they nap. Yeah, because apparently they can breathe on the moon, of course. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then they're dreaming of women. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for me, like, I think, like, the first half of the movie is like, oh, this is interesting from a time capsule point of view. And then the moment when they go into that subterranean cave and that mushroom grows, like, several feet or whatever, mm-hmm. and then, like, one of the lunar creatures comes out from behind it, that's the moment where I'm like, whoa, like, my mind is blown. What's going on here, you know? In, like, one moment, it, it goes from, like, a time capsule to, like, honestly, a very... Um, 
transportive and like kind of mind-blowing experience you know yeah a movie like yeah. we all the kinds of movies we love right <laughs> absolutely yeah <laughs> all right does this movie stand the test of time or is it completely forgettable Oh, this, I mean, you know, it's an all-time classic. I mean, if only for the ways that it influenced science fiction and fantasy and just cinema in general for the next hundred plus years, it's an all-time classic for sure. Yeah, I think it stands the test of time and is a bona fide classic. Yeah. And that's not to say it's like entertaining every step of the way and like you kind of do have to have in your mind like this is going to be a slightly different experience than most movies we watch nowadays but that's also one of the things that makes it so um fascinating you know yeah hi i'm robert osborne and welcome it's certainly no secret that today july 20th marks the 40th anniversary of one of the really great achievements of mankind, the first manned mission to the surface of the moon. It's an anniversary we've been, we've been celebrating all day today, and we're going to continue to do so into the wee hours of tomorrow with more films about space travel. And to make our festival particularly special, I'm very happy to say that I'm joined right now by the man who was the lunar module pilot when Neil Armstrong landed the Eagle on Tranquility Base, became the second man to walk on the moon, Dr. Buzz Aldrin. Welcome, Buzz. Thanks, Robert. It's Thanks. great to be here Thanks on this for... special day. We're very happy to have you here. I also want to congratulate Dr. Aldrin on this new book he's written, which is called Magnificent Desolation, The Long Road Home from the Moon, which is all about his adventures in space. And since he is one of the few among us who can speak with authority about space travel, we thought he'd be a perfect co-host for the space travel films we have coming up. Well, up first, he's going to help me introduce the very first movie ever made about space travel, and not only that, it's one of the first movies ever made, period. It's A Trip to the Moon from director George Méliès in 1902. Now, this wow. is an incredible film, but you're an incredible man. And on this great anniversary, we know how we feel about the 40th anniversary. What do you feel? What are you thinking at this point? Well, it was indeed a magical time, uh, a pioneering time. And whenever you're pioneering something, uh, a degree of brilliance comes out and, and, and joins together because it's so fascinating, so new, and novel ideas are looked at and they're put together. And, and I'm truly amazed when I look back and, and see the events uh, that, that went from uh, Sputnik to uh, the president saying we're going to go to the moon and, and then we got there in a little over eight, eight and a half years. And, and how we did that. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about that when some of these other uh, yes. films come up. What are your impressions of this film? Well, you know, this film uh, came out one year before the Wright brothers did. Yes, exactly. And, and uh, one year before my mother was born. Uh, well, it needs to be looked at, not as people viewed it back in 1902, right. Right. but as people today view it uh, as something that was going through the minds of, of people back then. Uh, and really, it was sort of amazing or almost, well, an impossible thing to even sure. think about. A dream, a fantasy, and how they can possibly do it. And, of course, they, they entered in all sorts of inaccuracies about getting on the moon. And they didn't pay very much attention to how you get back either. Right. <laughs> that's, that's very right. funny. So let's see how the filmmakers did it. Here is the film written, produced, directed by, and starring George Méliès from 1902, A Trip to the Moon.
So with that said, let's uh, talk about our second short here that we're going to feature. And this one is is four minutes in length, and it's from 102 years later, 2004's <laughs> Papillon d'Amour. And this was your pick. So, uh, yeah, tell us about that one. Yeah, so I saw this movie a long time ago when I was an undergrad in film school at UW-Milwaukee. It's uh, It's kind of an experimental avant-garde movie where the director, Nicholas Provost, um, takes found footage. Uh, the movie Rashomon by Akira Kurosawa from 1950. Uh, he basically um, cuts the image down the middle vertically, and then he does like a mirroring effect. Uh, he adds some very abrasive music to it, and he kind of turns it into this extremely uh, harsh, but I think beautiful and very poetic um, depiction, I guess, very expressionistic depiction of a woman going through extreme suffering or grief or heartache. Um, and in the movie Rashomon, the, the plot is that like she is a woman who is raped and then her husband is murdered. But in Papillon d'Amour, we don't necessarily know that. So it's kind of just a more general depiction of, you know, human suffering, basically. Uh, but I, I do think, you know, she seems mo monstrous physically and visually because she does not look human for a lot of the movie. It's kind of like this amorphous blob that's moving in like a very bizarre way because she's cut in half visually. Um, but, you know, you know, the movie sympathizes with her at the same time and is kind of showing, you know, kind of like the lowest depths that that humans can kind of go through, like their worst kind of suffering and despair, basically. Um, so in my opinion, and I'm, I'm excited to hear what you think about this movie in particular, but uh, I think it's really beautiful. I think the approach is pretty simple, but I think like the interpretations that you can get out of it are vast and they're, you know, kind of multitudinous, I guess you could say. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's a pretty emotional experience, I think. Yeah, it's a it's a violent experience and it doesn't start off that way necessarily. You know, OK, I hear the title is Butterfly of Love. And I watch this movie and I'm thinking, oh, OK, it's a woman. She's turning into a butterfly. There's obviously themes of some sort of transformation, metamorphosis. Great. I was not aware of the Rashomon mm. um, connection. So I do see four stoic uh, men in the background watching her with no emotion in their faces. And I'm like, OK, great. I can see a. A relationship here between, you know, gender dynamics, gender roles. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm just fascinated by the, it's like a kaleidoscope effect of of the editing. And, and then the music is really effective in this film. Because about halfway through this, like, not genteel, but, you know, soothing kind of music just like turns into like a screamo harsh metallic sound that jolted me and I was scared and I was like whoa so now this feels like a horror movie mm -hmm. and this is a this is a painful experience which transformation often is um whatever that means to you in your own life so yeah I and then it was over and it was only four minutes long and I was like whoa <laughs> I didn't expect to feel anything with a movie this short. And when it started, I was honestly like, okay, I've seen movies like this mm. at art museums. Great. It's, it's uh, avant-garde, <laughs> but it, then it caught me off guard and I was like, yes, thank you. That's great. So that was my experience cool. watching it. 
That's so good to hear. Yeah, this is, you know, I, I watched a lot of kind of insufferable art movies when I was a, uh, uh, going to film school, but like some really great ones, too. And I think like when it's uh, if it's as visually interesting as this movie, but also seems to have like an emotional sort of like uh, motivation, then that's the best kind of like avant garde or experimental work, you know, and this one's really good, I think. Yeah. Go check it out. Matt, you have a great write-up of this film on our website, campkaijumoviereviews.com, uh, that honestly I took all of my research for from. <laughs> cool. I'm, no, I'm happy to hear that. That's great. <laughs> um, our next short that we're going to feature on this bonus episode is even shorter at less than two minutes long, also made at a film school uh, and also influential. Bambi meets Godzilla. Matt, I'm really interested to hear what you think about this movie because you were new to it. Totally new. Yeah. Okay. And I say movie. It is a cartoon. Technically. And very short, like a minute and a half, right? Yeah. 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 Um, should I uh, should I go first or I, I can let you sort of. Well, provide. yeah, I can. I'll give more historical context. Um, so <laughs> it's got it's, it's tongue in cheek, but the the film was. um directed, written, animated, uh, many, many other things by Marv Newland. Uh, it was produced actually by Mr. and Mrs. Newland. Um, and most of the runtime is of the credits rolling over an image of a deer, Bambi, just grazing in the field. And it's very serene. The uh, part of the William Tell overture is playing. So it's very like, oh, very nice and pleasant. The flowers were in the in the forest. <laughs> and then right at the end, a giant reptilian foot literally crushes Bambi to death. That is Godzilla. Um, and right when this happens, uh, a musical chord uh, hits. And it's actually the last chord from the Beatles A Day in the Life song. So again, Kind of like Papillon de Amour, it's just very jarring and it jolts you um, and and maybe um, surprises you a little bit. But the film, so the cartoon um, was a, a film project by Marv Newland, but it did find life um, at film screenings around the country. It was even featured on the, uh, I hope I get this right, the home release the video release of Godzilla 1984 uh, featured on the VHS there. So people know it. People have seen it. And in 19, this is kind of its claim to fame. It is preserved by the American Academy of motion picture, motion picture arts and sciences. Um, but it was ranked number 36 out of Jerry Beck's book, the 50 greatest cartoons as selected by 1,000 animation professionals, um, a book that came out in 1994. So among all the Looney Tunes, all the Disney cartoons, Bambi meets Godzilla as an indie did make the cut, which I find really impressive. Yeah, totally. And I think it's uh, it's easy to see why. Like it's a it's a concept that is just like executed perfectly, you know? And it is kind of like a one joke movie, although the credits are really hilarious. Like, I love that, like, uh, Marv Newland is also credited with providing Bambi's wardrobe. Like, that's the sense of humor of this movie, you know. Um, 
but it is basically a one joke movie but that's okay if your movie's only a minute and a half long it's just like perfectly presented you know yeah uh i think it's hilarious and i i loved the little piece of trivia in the interview that you sent me the link to where marv newland says that he was talking with terry gilliam uh who started off in monty python and then of course made a lot of other great movies after that but like um yeah terry gilliam was inspired by this movie bambi versus godzilla in some of the monty python animations that are featured in i think it's holy grail monty python and the holy grail so yeah and and some and you see that in their flying circus tv show as well but the, yeah. yeah like the image of a monstrous godzilla foot stomping on something started here with Bambi meets Godzilla. So a huge influence um, in pop culture from this little 90 second cartoon. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really funny. I mean, like the animation's not like mind blowingly beautiful or anything, but it doesn't have to be. So um, yeah, it's it's great. I loved it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Papillon de Amor. Does it stand the test of time? Where would you rank it? Uh, yeah, for me, it does. This is what Papillon d'Amour is like one of my favorite, you know, formalist abstract movies that I've seen. Um, yeah, for me, it definitely stands the test of time. I would call it a classic personally. Okay. And me not knowing this genre of film. Um, I'll just say, yeah, you know, being the one of the few that I've been taken by, I'll say it is a classic and stands the test of time. Um, what about Bambi meets Godzilla? I gotta say it's a classic too. Like, you know, there, there are lots of different kinds of classics out there and they don't have to be like a huge emotional experience or whatever. Like I think for what Bambi versus Godzilla is trying to do, it's pretty much perfectly done. Agreed. And, and I'd seen this before, so I know, I I knew what happened to Bambi. Did you know what happened to Bambi? Yeah, I did. Because <laughs> I read about this movie before I watched it. So yeah. But yeah. I feel like if you didn't, and even me watching it with fresh eyes, I was surprised because the musical chord is so um, abrasive <laughs> that I was a little surprised. I was like, oh, I didn't realize my body was so tense for <laughs> 90 seconds. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I thought like the, the first kind of pleasant shot of Bambi was going to go on a little bit longer. But this movie is so short that it really is unexpected. It happens pretty quickly, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, all all three of these shorts are you know uh among classic territory i would say amazing yeah well this was awesome thank you all for listening and hanging out if you liked what you hear please tell a friend leave a rating and review and visit camp kaiju movie reviews.com instagram or patreon.com slash camp kaiju for more monster movie content patrons we can't thank you enough and if you have any suggestions for us let us know you can get in touch with us any way you can uh including camp kaiju at gmail.com all right everybody until next time stay campy